They actually did a whole body scan before Mike left the hospital and found a third mass. But they couldn't tell us how big that was until we ended up at a urologist office who did all of the tests all over again, got it all back, saw that the primary site was actually not the kidneys, it was between the heart and the lung, and it was very large. And he immediately sent us to an oncologist the very day we saw, the minute he got the test back. He sent us right to an oncologist. The oncologist then asked for a biopsy of the tumor that was between the heart and the lung. It wasn't actually attached to the lung, but it was between the heart and lung. So Mike went in for a biopsy, and that all went really rapidly. And I think that's because I partly knew I, we had to do this because of my experience with my parents. And so I was pushing them, the quickest appointments, we will do it. When we went back to the oncologist for the final report, it wasn't it wasn't kidney cancer at all. It was internal stage four melanoma, which is no longer extremely treatable. That's pretty much a death sentence. And the oncologist here in Naples said, you need to wrap your head around the fact that you have six to 12 months to live. I wanna take this opportunity to welcome those of you who are listening to this very special resource Mark Inc. Ministries has developed. And uh, Sharon, why don't you tell us exactly what we're doing here today and uh, give us an opportunity, give everyone an opportunity to um, find out who our guests are. Thanks, Chuck. And I'm Sharon Betters, and you've just heard from my husband, Chuck. I'm the executive director of Mark Inc. Ministries, and we exist to offer help and hope to hurting people. And one of the ways that we do that is by telling stories and giving people an opportunity to share their story of what happened in their lives when, as we say, the lights went out, when something happened that turned their lives upside down, something that was fearful or frightening or there was the unknown. And often our stories focus on circumstances that are sometimes experienced in isolation or uh, that are long-term and the people around the broken person don't even know what to do. So. Part of the purpose of our storytelling is to offer help and hope to somebody from someone who is further along in the journey and also to equip those who want to help that person. So today, uh, we're very excited to have Mike and Sherry Kendrick in the studio who are ready to share their own story of what happened in their lives when, as we like to say, the lights went out. So Sherry, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? We have three children. Uh, they're all adult children now. Uh, Jay, our oldest, is married and has our first granddaughter. <coughs> Abby, our second, is uh, married to Raphael and actually lives in Naples with us um, in, their, in their home. And um, my youngest is still in college and just got engaged. So we've had some fun things happen recently. Mike, tell us a little bit about yourself. I um, grew up in East Tennessee, Southwest Virginia. Sherry and I met when we were just children. We both went through college, got married right after college, and as Sherry says, we've been together for a lifetime. I've served in ministry. That has been my career, my, my calling. Father of three, have one granddaughter. About how long ago was it when you were diagnosed with the cancer? Why don't you give us a little bit of a description of the journey that you have been on with this cancer that you're battling? It's probably about four years ago now that I was diagnosed. You know, I had the proverbial story of never being sick a day in my life, you know, always very 
very healthy. Then I remember probably around November four years ago, I just didn't feel quite right. But, um, you know, everyone was sick. Everyone had bugs down here and in Collier County as the winter people were coming down. So I just, you know, I didn't pay that much attention to it. And then I started to develop some sort of uh, knife in the back pains if I did a sudden movement or coughed or something like that. And I thought I had a kidney stone. So um, on one particular Sunday, it was really severe. And so Sherry said, well, you know, let's just go into the ER and they'll probably do an an MRI and they'll tell you how big the kidney stone is. So we went in and uh, I went back, did the, did the MRI and then they brought us back into the little curtained off waiting room and the doctor came in and he, he said, well, no, you don't have a kidney stone. He said, you have a mass on each kidney. And so, I mean, I, I knew then that we were looking at something very different. What was your immediate response when the doctor says you have a mass on both kidneys? My immediate response was, this is serious. And yet I'm, I'm not sure it really, you know, it really sunk in. There was so much I didn't know at the time. But that was my immediate, my immediate thought is that, you know, this is, this is something that's serious. Uh, Sherry began to make phone calls. She called our family, called our children. You know, there was a sense in which I didn't know what we were looking at, but I knew that it was something that was really serious. Sherry, were you there when that diagnosis came from that doctor? What was your response? By this time, the urologist was in, and we were seeing a urologist, and he's like, there's some masses. It's, you know, probably kidney cancer. We'll need to check into it kind of thing. But there wasn't, there wasn't this immediate, oh, my, this is not treatable kind of thing. Right. It was... It was, oh, this is kidney cancer. Kidney cancer is a very treatable kind of thing. And so my mind quickly went to, okay, this is what it is. What do we got to do now? And part of that comes from my background because both of my parents had cancer and I had done cancer journeys with them. So I immediately went into what I already knew, that what you have to do, how you have to talk to the doctors, which doctors you have to get to. So my first response is, okay, what, what do I got to do to find the medical care that he's going to need? And just that, that feeling you get in your head where everything goes fuzzy for a little while. Mm-hmm. It took us a couple of days to come out of the fuzziness and know where to, to start to begin in the process. So what was next? They actually did a whole body scan before Mike left the hospital and found a third mass. But they couldn't tell us how big that was until... We ended up at a urologist office who did all of the tests all over again, got it all back, saw that the primary site was actually not the kidneys. It was between the heart and the lung, and it was very large. And he immediately sent us to an oncologist the very day we saw, the minute he got the test back. He sent us right to an oncologist. The oncologist then asked for a biopsy of the tumor that was between the heart and the lung. It wasn't actually attached to the lung, but it was between the heart and lung. And um, so Mike went in for a biopsy and that all went really rapidly. And um, I think that's because I partly knew we had to do this because of my experience with my parents. And so I was pushing them the quickest appointments. We will do it. When we went back to the oncologist for the final report, it wasn't it wasn't kidney cancer at all. It was internal stage four melanoma. 
which is no longer extremely treatable, that's pretty much a death sentence. And the oncologist here in Naples said, you need to wrap your head around the fact that you have six to 12 months to live. Mike, when that doctor said that to you, what was your immediate thought? Chuck, honestly, it was just too much to take in. I mean, my parents were with me. I had an inkling that, you know, we could get some really bad news. So I had called my parents um, because my thought was, if Sherry and I are here by ourselves and we go and we get this and we get really bad news, then we need somebody here with us. Jay and Kelly, our oldest son and and daughter-in-law, were here. I mean, when he... When he said that to me, um, again, it was just too much for an immediate response. I'm the kind of person, I guess, that I process I process things a little more slowly. So there wasn't like an immediate reaction of, of fear or, or anything. But as that day went on, I guess my, my initial thoughts were, this is going to be the end of my life. And, and I began to ask questions like, you know, what have I really accomplished? What have I really done? How did your children respond to hearing this news? Well, Jay was with us, and he reacted very angrily. He, he actually hit the wall in the doctor's office. He was in his last semester of graduate school, so they had to leave that afternoon and go back to um, Tallahassee, and they did do that. So he and his wife had time to process on their way back. Abby was in Orlando finishing. Uh, she had just finished her undergraduate degree, and I called her and told her to get ready to move home, that I was going to need her help, and because she could do that. Her husband does a remote kind of job and uh, she could come home and help me. And I, I called her and told her to get ready to come home and she was more than willing to do that. And our youngest was getting ready to start his spring semester of his freshman year of college. And I called his coach before I called him and I said, you need to go get Nathan and bring him to your office. I have some hard news to give him and I want you with him. So um, we withdrew Nathan from college and brought him home. Nathan was the most tender. Didn't want to be left out, but didn't want too much information either. Uh, Jay wanted to know everything, and Abby's more my medical one, so she can process all that, and I knew she'd help me with the jargon. She handled all that really well. And the other important thing that they did pretty rapidly is they got together sort of behind our backs, and they all decided to move home simultaneously. So by February 1st, We were all in the house together for whatever time we had left to help each other go through the process. So the the mindset of your children was uh, you're going to you're going to die. And they wanted to be there as you were going through these last few months of your life. But it didn't turn out that way, did it? Why don't you tell us a little bit about the treatment plan and where we stand today and and then I want to get into some other matters here for you. Our oncologist in Naples, as, as Sherry said, made an immediate phone call to Moffitt Cancer Center here in uh, Tampa, Florida. I was able to go right in. Probably within a couple of weeks, I was, I was at Moffitt and went into a clinical trial. And the clinical trial was uh, a trial of some of the new immunotherapy drugs that are starting to come on the market now. And... Um, my treatment plan was to receive this certain drug combined with another drug. I received four treatments, uh, basically one, one treatment a month for four months. 
And then the secondary drug, I received that once a week for about two and a half years. Everything happened so, so quickly, but I almost knew immediately that the drug was working. You know, I was feeling better, I was stronger. He took scans at the beginning, and, uh, and the scans at the beginning revealed that my combined tumor mass was uh, approximately 150 cubic centimeters between four different tumors. And at the end, the combined tumor mass was probably... It was an 85% reduction. Okay. And then it continued to reduce from that drastic reduction so that today my, my tumor mass between two visible tumors is probably three cubic centimeters. So they went, they went right away to a clinical uh, trial. Uh, they didn't even bother with what would be a normal protocol, chemotherapy and radiation and all of that. They immediately went to this this uh, trial. Yes. Did you ask for that, or was that something that they offered you initially? That d did they did they offer you the traditional approach? Not really. My doctor basically said that the kind of cancer I had did not respond well to chemotherapy, and so he really felt that my best prospects were to take the immunotherapy drugs, and so that's what we did. And I would say that those drugs, that this new way of treating cancer that's kind of really coming on now offers a lot of hope for people with cancer that we really didn't have uh, beforehand. And that's one of the questions that I know whoever is listening to this might have right now. Uh, obviously, they're listening to this because either they have a personal crisis or a friend who does. And it, it seems like we've gone from a doctor sitting in the ER basically telling you you have masses on your kidneys to somebody telling you you have just months to live to you receiving specialized treatment that four years later now, you're still battling, but nonetheless, your the prognosis is, is much better than it was then. What would you say to that person who's listening right now when they receive this kind of devastating news from a doctor? What, what should they do? What should their response be? I mean, first of all, obviously, they have to absorb what they've just been told. But from a medical perspective, what should they do? I would encourage anyone to seek out to get advice about the immunotherapy treatment to see what that might have to offer them. It has, it has come with a lot of promise. The particular drug that I took at the time that I took it, which as I say four years ago now, they were close to a 40% positive response rate in the clinical trial. Now, by that, by a 40% positive response rate, the doctors mean anything from the tumors stop growing to that they reduce 30%, 50%, and then some people, fortunately I was in that category, almost 90% reduction. Now, since that time, there have been other families, other generations of that same drug that have come on that they are having even greater positive results from. So it offers hope. It, it really does. So I would encourage anyone who's received a cancer diagnosis to certainly ask about it and ask if their particular kind of cancer uh, can be treated this way. It is definitely something to consider. So if a doctor, a, an oncologist, is uh, not knowledgeable of this kind of treatment, what should, the, what should the patient do? Find someone who is? 
You need to find a cancer institute. Right. You need a place like Moffitt, like an MD Anderson, the places where there are 31, I think it's still 31, National Cancer Institutes, and then there's also private cancer hospitals, that that's what they specialize in, and they have access to these clinical trials that your local doctor doesn't have. And it's always good to ask for a referral because the institutes, the cancer hospitals, will give you a second opinion in what your local doctor hospital may be the right protocol for your particular mm-hmm. cancer, and you can continue to follow that. But from our experience, we would tell you that anybody that we know and love, and they find out they have a cancer diagnosis, we would request from them to go see an institute that's designed in the research of cancer to make sure that the protocol being followed by the local doctor is the most knowledgeable to be done and that the newest drugs are being used. Because there's new drugs in chemotherapy as well as amniotherapy. And amniotherapy is now being used not just in stage four cancers, but stage three, and they're starting trials as low as stage two. A local doctor's not gonna know that, whereas your institutes know that. When I was diagnosed with breast cancer, and it was over 30 years ago, I know that in my own heart, I thought, I need to know that I know what all my options are. Even if I end up doing exactly what my doctor said to do, I had to know that I had uncovered all my options. And my doctor was more than willing to help me do that. And I think that's really critical, too, is to have a doctor who is not afraid of somebody disagreeing with him or her. And so you want to be able to look back and say, we did everything that we knew how to do, and we picked the option that was best for us, too. Mike, you mentioned that your calling has been ministry all your life. So that begs the question of the spiritual side of this, your faith journey. What part did your faith have in this journey with really fighting for your life? The medical decisions, to a large degree, I think were out of my hands. I didn't know what to do. Uh, I didn't know what was the best treatment. And so when I went to Moffitt, I listened to the doctor and I took his advice. As far as, you know, my faith, it, it held me. And so my faith helped me to be able to accept whatever the outcome was going to be. Did you have any conversations with your children uh, about your own faith or how you were handling the uncertainty of the cancer diagnosis and the treatment and and what the future held. Sure, and they understood. Their faith is real to them as well. And they understood that, you know, ultimately that I would be okay. Now when you say that, okay, okay, they believed you were gonna be healed. I think not at the beginning. When I say ultimately that I would be okay is they they knew that even if I wasn't healed or I didn't recover, that my eternal home was was secure. So when you talk about your faith, explain what are you talking about? Uh, when I talk about my faith, I I mean that Jesus Christ has made me his child. He has paid for all of my sins and that I stand before him as his child, and that I have the promise of eternal life, that I will be with him, I will, 
I will be in heaven, and that he is in control of my life. That's what I mean when I talk, when I say my faith held me. So did you struggle with questioning why this happened to you personally? Did your children struggle with that? I mean, did they say, Lord, you're, you're in control? That's what you're saying is he's in control. He holds you. Why did he let you have this kind of cancer? Obviously, to say that we struggled, I, I would say that um, obviously it was a surprise. It was a shock and it was a real disappointment. Nobody plans in their early 50s to suddenly have their life threatened this way. I understand, and, and I think I've always understood, that we live in a world where, you know, bad things happen. And I've always understood that just because I was, quote unquote, in ministry, that that did not exempt me from experiencing anything that my next door neighbor might experience who doesn't have a faith at all. I'm no different from him, certainly no better than him. And so I really didn't struggle from that standpoint of why me? I truly believe that God allows those of us who are Christians to experience the very same things that the non-Christian experiences because we live in a broken and fallen world. Uh, Sherry, you, you impress me as somebody who probably is very good during the crisis, but maybe comes apart afterwards. Uh, am I accurately reading you? You are very accurately reading me. And so you, you went into um, education mode, I'm going to find out everything I need to find out, etc. What about your faith struggle? Did you have a faith struggle as you were in the, in the process of trying to figure out what's next? What do we do next? Where do we go from here? I'm a children's director of our church. And one of my initial struggles was, Lord, how am I going to explain this not only to our own children and us walk through it, though I had a better idea of that because they're older and they're processed. But how am I going to do this in front of a hundred kindergartners to fifth graders who were going to understand that Miss Sherry's husband, Mr. Mike, was very sick and they were going to be praying for him and they were going to be asking the Lord to heal him. And if the Lord chose to take him to heaven, how was I going to reconcile with them the goodness of God, because God is still good, whether death comes because we experience eternal life in heaven, or if there is healing to come. We actually had one of the little kids in the children's program. Um, I tried to explain it to the kids that there were these two drugs that the doctor had given Mike, and they had really superhero names, uh, Urvoy and Silitron. And I actually had one of the little kids bring us transformers with capes on them with the names of the drugs on it. And we still have those because for those are markers for us. So that was one of my, I was like, Lord, how are we going to do this? That was a question I was asking him. How are we, how are we going to help the kids process? And so I told the kids the story of Daniel in, in, um, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace that God doesn't change no matter what our fire is. That our fire at this moment had happened to be cancer, but God was good whether he saved us and we went to heaven or whether he did save us in this life and we were healed and continued to serve him. The bigger faith crisis came for me 
almost as all of it was ending and everything got quiet again. In the middle of the crisis, there was this real sense of a grace bubble. We were walking in and as it sort of has become to the end, the questions that are coming now in some ways are harder for me. How do we live knowing that this can come back? How do I live with all my kids not in my house anymore? The quietness that comes after the storm is harder for me. And yet God in his Holy Spirit has ministered to my heart and reminded me that just as he was with us in the crisis, he will be with us in the quiet and he will be with us in the questions that are not going to get answered. We're not going to have an answer for a long time as to what's going to happen next. We're just not going to have those, those answers. And yet he's still God and he has been faithful to be with us. We have not been alone in our faith with him in this. He's been very present and that he will continue to do that. And I would say, too, Sherry talks about the fact that God has been with us, and He has been with us. But for me, it was not the fact that He was or that He is with me, but it's, it's more of how He is with me. What manner is He with me? And there is a, there is a, um, a place in the Bible that became very real to me where the author of this particular book talks about our earthly struggles as we experience all the daily things of life. And the author uh, describes that by using a word that, that we kind of groan, you know, there's a heaviness that we live with in the day-to-day of disease, disappointment, and all those things. And then he goes on to say that sometimes in all that we become so confused that we don't even know what to ask God for, what's the best thing for us. And, and then we are told that really God himself groans with us. That became very important to me, that God was not just seated high and majestic and away from me calling all the shots, but that he, there, he experiences an empathy. And so I would say that that went a long ways of holding me, that God was with me emotionally. How do you live with the potential fear of the cancer returning with a vengeance? Mm, the concept of just living without regret. We're making the most of this time. Makes you not argue about things that aren't important anymore. Things that aren't important don't take precedent. You know, the things that are more important do. And for us, that wasn't a trip to, you know, Europe or Hawaii. For us, that was family meals around the table, celebrating birthdays, enjoying Christmas holidays as a family. For us, it's been the little things, enjoying those and rejoicing in those. The practical to, to us is we've enjoyed work. We've enjoyed the purpose of our, of our work and what we do. And there's just a sense in which you have to decide you're going to live. You're not going to be bound by a fear that you're going to live and enjoy this day rather than being bound by the what-ifs because you can't handle the what-ifs until they come. So it's in some ways, it's a conscious choice. And that's a process. At least it has been for me. It's a process of not always waiting for the other shoe to drop. It's a process of re-engaging again fully. 
I would say, a struggle that I had and maybe to some degree just now coming out of is that struggle of just waiting until, you know, okay, what's the next bad news? And so the process has been of engaging and doing it without hesitating, without, without fear. So living in this moment and doing what's in front of you as though the specter of cancer is not even on your radar screen, making that choice. So Sharon, as you know, cancer changes you and you never are the same person again which in some ways it brings us into more reality because the truth of the matter is is that every one of us, frail human beings and subject to anything that might happen tomorrow. So it does bring us more into touch with the reality of our lives as opposed to just sort of living day to day without giving any thought to how fragile we can be. I remember, actually wrote an article about this, that I was not cancer's victim, that I was the, a victor. And for a long time, every time I would have a bone scan, it was a, it was a very scary time for me, extremely scary. And there, I realized if Chuck said, let's go for a ride or let's go to the beach or let's do something fun with the kids, it, it wasn't, I didn't even have to think twice. I knew, I thought this could be the last time uh, that we have that kind of freedom. And life is so precious. It's a gift that God gives to us. Uh, it's a wake-up call. It definitely is a wake-up call. And the thing is, yes, we've had the wake-up call of cancer, but as a family, we know it doesn't have to be cancer that turns your life upside down. And so anybody can make that choice of, I'm gonna live life in the moment because I don't know if it can be my last moment. But there's another level that you have talked about that I, I think is critical for anybody to understand who is dealing with fear. And I think about a young woman who called me, she was hysterical, her husband was flying and she was convinced he was going to die. The plane was gonna crash. It was irrational. She was, she was irrational about it and she was uh, and I'm trying to be practical with her and she stopped me and she said you can't tell me everything's going to be okay because she knew my history you know of our own losses and I said you're right and I haven't said everything's going to be okay but here's what I can tell you with confidence the Lord will meet you in that dark place if something happens to your husband God has promised he will give you what you need in that terrible place and I think that is what uh, the two of you have been saying about your own particular dark places. Let me be more specific here. I know that these dark places, whether it's in our case, it was the loss of a child and the cancer where the lights went out. And in your case, obviously the very serious cancer that you continue to battle where kind of a darkness sets in. We're, we're told by those who um, are the, the social engineer type people that these are the crises that affect the marriage. These are the things that parents who lose a child, uh, the statistics go significantly through the roof as to whether or not that marriage is going to survive. So let me ask you point blank, how did this crisis affect your marriage, either positively or negatively? It, um, I think what it became for Sherry and I is, and I was kind of the patient and Sherry was the, 
the caregiver is that Chuck, it became something else that the two of us tackled together. You know, we approached it together. It didn't become something that drove us apart, but it was something that we did together. Isn't that something that makes, uh, isn't that really a choice that you have to make that uh, either the fire is going to refine the steel or it's not? So your partnership prior to the cancer was critical in the ongoing success of your marriage. Am I, am I saying it correctly? Yes. Yeah. Sherry, how about you? Uh, Mike's right. We, we kind of locked arms and said, okay, how do we do this together? And what's your role? What's my role? Mike was really sick right in the very beginning until the, the immunotherapy treatment started to work. He was, he was pretty sick those first two months and so there was he just was not able to do a whole lot but we got to talk through those things what do you want to do about this what do you want to do about this we got our wills together you know we did those kinds of things but I would tell you there was an increased intimacy uh, not so much physically because Mike was very ill but emotionally and um, somewhat spiritually. The Lord would wake me up in the middle of the night and there was a point at which the tumor was so big I could actually feel it in his back and I would put my hand on it. And the Lord just wake me up and I would just pray, Lord, you know what you want for us. But that increased my intimacy with Mike, my longing not to be apart from him and yet my longing for us to be united in this together, whatever that outcome was going to be. But there was definitely a deepening of that emotional contact. It was probably nine months to a year after the diagnosis before we had our first little spat, you know, and it was over something totally, you know, probably something as dumb as what you want to drink, okay? But I remember thinking, oh my, things are going back to normal, you know? But up until then, we were just linked emotionally and spiritually, and we were just together. I could almost hear somebody who's listening to this say, all right, Mike and Sherry, you have both spoken of your faith sustaining you. You have spoken of a support base that includes, obviously, your church family. You've spoken of the marriage, the great marriage that you had prior to the cancer that crystallized even better during the cancer. But I don't have any of that. I don't have that support base. Uh, I don't have that faith that you have. I have no hope. Uh, Listening to the two of you, what would you say to that person right now who's probably ready to turn this off because they just don't have the things that you're speaking of? Uh, Sharon, I'm going to talk to you as if you are that person. And I want to say to you that though you feel very much alone, and you do not have a family who is that close, and you do not have that kind of support system around you, I want to let you know that you are not alone, that the Lord Jesus has come, he has demonstrated his love for you, and for whatever might be the reasons that you have not embraced him in your life, he has still not left you, and he is here. And so what I would say to you is this. I would say for you to genuinely look at Christ as someone who, can, who, who most certainly can give you hope and to, and to genuinely ask the questions, the honest questions. And it could be as simple as just a prayer in your heart. Jesus, if you are real, I need you to help me understand. 
and I need you to help me know that you are with me and that even though it feels as if I'm going through this alone and by myself, in reality, in fact, I am not, that you are here. And then, Sharon, I would encourage you, if there's anyone, either in your circle of friends or family, who may have this faith, go to them. Ask them questions. Ask them, tell them that if you are interested in looking into this, ask them to direct you. Sherry, let me play devil's advocate for a moment. Uh, Actually, it's really not playing devil's advocate. It's something I actually went through where after we lost our son, Mark, during uh, the aftermath of that, I remember having this conversation with God. You say you love me, Lord. You say you're my father. I would never treat my child this way. Why are you treating me this way? I could almost hear that person that's listening to this right now who's had that terrible diagnosis placed on them. Mike, I hear you say that there's a God who loves me. There's a God who cares for me. And obviously you believe that. Obviously I believe that. But what about the person who doesn't believe that and maybe is feeling like I felt at that time? I wouldn't treat my child this way. Why are you treating me this way? Why me? Well, you have to go to the truth of what God did to his son. God sent his son. You know, the statement, Jesus died for my sins, has to imply that Jesus, who is God's son, came and died on the cross for you in that situation where you're doubting him and for us in the situation where we're looking at eternity very quickly, that he did not even spare his son that, that he felt what you felt and he's felt what we felt. And he, that's why he can be with us in the moment that we're in. And the, when the lights go out, Christ can meet us in that because he's experienced that when he died on the cross and he died for our sins. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And there is no safer place to be. You know, in our sorrow, in the depth of our loneliness, he is not absent in those things because he experienced those things. And he offers to us hope in that. One of the things that sustained me in when the lights went out, but it took a while, and, and I am a woman of faith, but I'm that woman who was wrestling with the Lord, um, not understanding how he could love me and he didn't have to let this happen to me. I got to the point where I thought you need to focus on what you know, not on what you don't know. So what do I know? I know what you just said, Sherry, that there is no greater love than what Jesus demonstrated. My heavenly father extended to me and that is where I needed to focus. Not understanding all the grief, not knowing how am I going to get through the next moment, let alone the next year without our son, but focus on the fact that no greater love has been demonstrated than what God did with Jesus. That had to be enough for that moment. And I think for the person who is listening right now, who's hanging on by their fingernails, just what Mike and Sherry have said is that you, you start in that moment of saying, Ari, just what Mike suggested is to pray that prayer, Lord, I'm desperate, I need help, show me. And then watch and see what he does to show you that he is there 
as you look for the help that he promises to give. It's hard to explain sometimes. When we were at the hospital the night that we got that call, that is every parent's nightmare, and I asked the nurse whether or not Mark was dead, and she shook her head yes. And Sharon began to cry hysterically, as you could expect that any mother would. And I held her as she beat on my chest and saying she just kept screaming, no, no, no. And, and I've often thought of that in the context of what Sharon just referred to as this wrestling match that we have with the Lord, where actually, Sharon, you have called it the gift of wrestling, where we ask the tough questions, we beat on the, on the Lord's chest. And I like to tell people that our God is big enough for us to beat on his chest, to question whether or not he's made a wise decision, knowing full well in our hearts he's all wise and, and, and is, is, has never failed. But still, as humans, to be able to ask that question of faithlessness in the process of taking a journey toward faith, where I don't, I don't believe that everything's going to work together for good to those who love God. You mentioned earlier, Mike, groaning, and Paul says in the book of Romans that we, we, do, we do groan. He speaks of them as moanings and groanings that cannot be uttered, words we cannot speak. And I like to, I like to view it this way, and I'd like you to comment on this. As Christians, we have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God's down payment, his guarantee of what is to come. So he gives us himself as the down payment, guaranteeing that we will have eternal life. But that, that Holy Spirit also intercedes for us. And there are times when the Holy Spirit goes before the Father in heaven and simply says, you hear Chuck groaning and moaning. You hear that he can't even put this into words. He can't even explain what, is, what his feelings are right now. Don't listen to him. And I feel like the Holy Spirit intervenes for us at those points and says, I am now communicating exactly what you feel because I have felt those very same things because Christ has been tested and tempted in every point like unto us. The Holy Spirit does comfort. He is the advocate. He is the one who gives us the gift of comfort during those times when we are intensely hurting, when the pain is, is severe. Can you comment on that? I mean, can you, can you explain from your own perspective how that fit your situation? As the Holy Spirit prayed for me, he didn't do it as a God who was removed. You know, in our faith, in our, in, in our belief, we, you know, we believe, we're convinced that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came and he went through all of life just as we go through life. He didn't remove himself from all the struggles and disappointments. And then finally accepted on himself the greatest struggle, which was the consequence of my sin, uh, that I could be forgiven. Well, I feel that the Holy Spirit also, as he prays for me, as he prays for us, and he does it with groans that cannot be uttered, in addition to his praying for things that we can't understand, he also prays with deep empathy and that just as just as creation groans just as we groan the holy spirit groans as he too probably longs for that day 
that he is working toward when we will be completely redeemed, to use religious words here, that we will enter into eternal life. The Holy Spirit longs for that. And I think he feels, empathetically, he feels the struggles that we go through. And as he prays for us, he's not praying emotionally removed, but he intercedes for us. In some ways, similar to what Jesus does, where the apostle said in the book of Hebrews that the reason Jesus is a faithful high priest, praying, interceding, is because he has been tempted. He does understand our weaknesses. And so because of that, he is able to go before the Father and pray for us because he understands the hurt that we are going through or the disappointment or the pain. And I think that that the Holy Spirit does the same, that the Holy Spirit prays for us with these groanings that are too deep for us to understand, that we can't even put into words. And Sherry, as we uh, wrap this up, I want you to talk to the lady sitting on the other side of this recording who maybe has a spouse or a friend or a child who is, uh, has just been diagnosed and the diagnosis is not good. What hope, what help do you want to offer that young lady that's listening to you right now? It is a hard journey. Somebody you love has just been given a diagnosis that's really scary, that you don't know the outcome. For me, the hardest time was always between knowing that something was wrong and sort of knowing what we're going to do about it. That time just felt so terribly long. But what I want you to know is that God is not absent in this, that he is with you, whether the outcome is good or not as good as you wish it to be that you can go to him and he will meet your fears. He will meet the unspoken fears that are so deep in your heart you can't even say them. That you can lean into him instead of running away from him. That's a better place to be than the running away. The running away gives you no hope at all. The running to gives you somebody that you know is with you even if it doesn't go the way you want it to. Find a friend. Find a friend that loves you and say all the hard things that you don't want anybody else to say and say them out loud over and over again. Find a place to worship. Worship helped me. Find a place to worship where you can come and you can cry and you can and you can beg the Lord to be with your loved one, be with you as you go through this process. The scary part of the the scariest part of the process for me was not even Mike's eventual death. I knew that if Mike died afterward, our life was stable enough with my kids and my family and my friends that I would have been okay. The really scary part for me was going through a real illness and watching death. And I can tell you from experience that God met me there. And if I had to do that, and if you had to do that, he is not absent even in that. Mike, where are, where are you now with your cancer treatments? Is your cancer in remission? Where are we right now? Well, I've experienced a, just a dramatic reduction in the tumors that I have. As I, uh, There's still two tumors, the combined tumor mass of about three cubic centimeters, which means that they've almost gone away. However, the latest word is that I do have a, some lymph nodes that are enlarged that are going to require biopsy. So I have an appointment date to go and 
through that. So where so the journey continues. <laughs> yeah. Just when I was ready to kind of close this chapter and really move on, not not quite yet exactly. Sharon, as you've listened to these two talk, um, what are what are your feelings as you listen to the two of them talk about this journey that they're on? Um, it reminds me some of the things that you're saying apply to life whether you have a cancer diagnosis or not. And I think that's the biggest takeaway is, for instance, we did an interview with a a widow and she said, if I could get one message across, it's don't assume anything, live life with your spouse as though it could be your last day and enjoy that. And I think that's a message that we need to get through to people is don't take for granted the marriages that you have, invest in them before the lights go out. Uh, invest in them, recognizing that this is a partnership that just what you just said, Sherry, about we linked arms and we were in this together um, so that when when the things happen, that the cracks in your marriage that can be exposed by crisis are not as big. They're, they're cracks that you can fill in easily. Secondly, the importance of faith for all of life, that personal relationship to Jesus Christ and not waiting until the crisis, but in life in general is recognizing how critical that relationship is and how it completes life. You know, it fills in those empty holes that sometimes we don't even know are there. And so I think those are some of the takeaway lessons that uh, you would probably, well, you've shared in, in our time together. We've had the wonderful opportunity of listening to the testimony of the Kendricks and so thankful that you guys were willing to do this. I'm thankful that you have stepped out in faith with this journey that you're on. But I know that maybe somebody is listening to this right now who simply doesn't understand a lot of what's been said here in these past few minutes. And I want to encourage you to take away just a few points that I think are absolutely critical if you're going to find some light in the middle of this darkness. At the top of the list is when we talk about faith, we're not talking about some sort of ethereal faith. We're not talking about some sort of uh, pie in the sky or that you're going to be healed and that God guarantees that I'm okay, you're okay, we're okay. Uh, That's not who we are. What I am talking about is faith in a living God who sent his son to die on a cross 2,000 plus years ago to pay for the sins of his people. I'm talking about a God who is the God of all comfort, who is able to experience, who has experienced everything that you are experiencing, has gone through every sorrow, a man who is, as the scripture says, acquainted with grief, and yet he offers to you the life that he alone can give by faith. It's not something that you learn in a book. It's not something that you can pull out of a hat. It's something that comes from your heart to the heart of God, where you confess that you are a sinner and that you live in this fallen and broken world of death and cancer and earthquakes and famines and all the other things that that are happening around us uh, as a fallen creature and that only Christ gives you the redemption because of what he did on that cross. So I want to encourage you to find that faith that you've heard Mike and Sherry talk about. That faith can be found 
only in the person of Jesus Christ. The scripture tells us that he came into this world as an act of love. He could have judged us, but instead he came to redeem us, to redeem us out of the pit. Secondly, I would hope that you would find a church where the word of God is preached and taught, where you can find a network of people who can surround you, people who can offer you their wisdom, their counsel. You know, we Christians suffer too. We experience the same things that those who are not uh, church-going people, people who are not involved in a Bible-believing church experience. We, uh, we lose our children. We, we get cancer. We have marriage struggles. We, we struggle with the same things that you do. And as one ancient father used to say that the church is not some sort of museum for saints. It's a hospital for sinners. And uh, we're just like you in so many ways. So I hope you can find a place where a faithful pastor is preaching and teaching the word, where faithful people are worshiping and gathering together, where you can find a support base uh, around you. And I'm sure if we can help you, if Mark Inc. Ministries can help you find that church, we are more than willing to do just that. This is a production of Mark Inc. Ministries. The Mark Inc logo and the Mark Inc. acronym stands for Making Abundant Riches Known in the Name of Christ. And you've been hearing one of our resources, one of our many resources that we offer. If you can visit us on our website at markinc.org, that's M-A-R-K-I-N-C.org, or call us at 877-MARK-INC. We would love to be able to help you in any way we possibly can. So I want to give you that opportunity, even now as you're listening to this, to give Give your heart and your life to Christ. And so I'm going to close this broadcast with a prayer, and I'm going to ask you if you would pray with me. We're going to pray for whoever's listening to this. We don't know you by name. We don't know what your situation is, but we know you didn't come to us by chance or fate or mistake, that God has brought you here because of his sovereign choice. So if you'll pray with me, I would like to ask that God will give you that very same peace you've heard spoken of here today. Father, I thank you for your grace, your love, your forgiveness, and the hope that you give us. I thank you that you allowed your son to die, to be butchered on that cross in an act of love. When you could have sent him 12 legions of angels to deliver him from that cross, you turned your back and in darkness, you allowed him to die, to experience death, to experience all of our sins, to spend the equivalent of an eternity in hell on that cross for us. And you did that, Lord, out of love. I pray for the person who's listening to this right now. I pray that if they do not know you, that they will in simple childlike faith reach out and say, Lord Jesus, I don't know all of this. I don't understand all of this. But right now, right here, I need you. And I want to invite you into my life. And Father, would you be pleased to enter that person's life and give them the hope that is not a deferred hope. Give them the peace that passes all understanding and give them that joy that is unspeakable as only you can do. We pray for their health or the health of the family member or friend that they're concerned about. We pray, Father, if it's in your will that you would bring healing, uh, that you would bring uh, total healing to their body. But if not, I pray that you would give them that peace that transcends even the human sorrow that we all experience. May your grace fill each person who listens to this broadcast. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.